Welcome back to the program. For those that have been through the experience, they say that the experience of being inside a combat zone is like no other. It is all-consuming and in so many ways eliminates the real world and its mundane, everyday problems. Yet the men and women engaged in that effort bring with them a life experience composed of those problems. Sometimes the military is a means of escape, sometimes a training ground for life, and frequently life-changing in and of itself. Yet most soldiers must return to the real world, and when they do, everything changes. That's the story that my guest Helen Thorpe tells about three unique women in her book, Soldier Girls. Helen Thorpe has been a staff writer for the New York Observer, the New Yorker, and Texas Monthly. She's the author of the previous book, Just Like Us, and it is my pleasure to welcome Helen Thorpe back to this program to talk about Soldier Girls, the battles of three women at home and at war. Helen Thorpe, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's great to have you here. This story takes place over the course of 12 years in the lives of these women. How did you come to know them? How did you come to their story? Yeah, I actually met the youngest of the three, uh, who is Michelle Fisher, um, in 2010. So all three women were back from the two deployments um, safely, and um, we were we were... I was interviewing them about their experiences over the previous decade. And amazingly, um, one of the women, the, the oldest of the three, Debbie Helton, had kept six diaries during her whole time in the military and overseas. And um, Desma Brooks, who is the middle in terms of age, um, she had she's a single mom with three children, and she had saved all of the emails that she and her children had written to each other. And Michelle, the youngest, um, had written many, many letters to her boyfriend at home and to her dad, and each of those men had saved everything she'd written to them. So we had this trove of documentary material to, to start with. And then they ended up sharing a lot of other things with me, too, like medical records and therapist notes. And um, so we, we were able to kind of reconstruct a very close, intimate portrait of their thoughts and feelings over the the preceding decade. The story of these three women is not about three women that thought they were going into combat or into a combat zone, but in fact, three that joined the National Guard prior to 9-11, and things changed. Tell us about that. Exactly. So they are different, perhaps, than the individual who signs up wanting to be a soldier and wanting to serve one's country overseas. They they didn't necessarily have that expectation or that hope. Um, so and and the, and the three of them are very different in terms of their expectations and their hopes and their feelings about service. So Michelle, the youngest, um, signed up. She enlisted when she was 18 years old in the spring of 2001. And as the reader looking over her shoulder, you know what's coming in the fall of 2001. But she has no idea. Uh, so she finds up thinking, well, the country, you know, has been at peace for so long. I need college tuition. My parents haven't saved money. My mother, you know, is working factory jobs. My father is driving a truck. I can sign up for the National Guard and do just one weekend a month, two weeks in the summer. Um, and she's a very unlikely candidate for the Guard because she's so left-leaning. She had just voted for Ralph Nader. She wears a rainbow hemp anklet on her ankle all the time. She thinks of herself as sort of a pot-smoking hippie. Uh, when she joins the Guard, 
she becomes very close friends um, with Debbie Helton, who's 30 years older than she is, and a very warm maternal figure. And Debbie has sort of opposing political beliefs. She uh, has always wanted to join the military. Her dad was in the Army. She thinks of herself as a daddy's girl. She's a crack shot. She can outshoot um, almost everybody else in their unit. She scores perfect score down at the range and things like this. And Debbie actually views the idea of overseas service as her dream. Uh, so when 9-11 happens, they have polar opposite reactions. Debbie thinks right away, oh, I hope if something... If, if we go to war, I hope I get to go. I, I want to serve my country that way. And um, Michelle is terrified because the last thing on earth she wants to do is a deployment. And then when they do deploy, Michelle ends up sharing a tent with Desma Brooks, who's the single mother with three children. And Desma had voted for George Bush. She supported the war in Afghanistan. She's not sure if the war in Iraq is a good idea. She's skeptical about whether, you know, there are enough troops for, to fight two wars at the same time. But she's pretty much in sync with um, the Bush administration and its thoughts in that moment. But she's very upset about being asked to leave her children for an entire year. And she's kind of rebellious uh, as a result. So she and Michelle kind of bond as the two troublemakers in their tent. When they are deployed, when they're given orders to deploy, talk a little bit about how they reconciled their lives, their families, the more or less normal lives they'd been living in Indiana with what they were about to face. Right. So, of course, we relied on the National Guard in an unprecedented way over the last decade. And though the Guard back then had not initially been training with the idea of lengthy multiple deployments, that's what happened. So these women were, in some ways, not really prepared for their fate. So, you know, in Michelle's case, she had just fallen in love. She had just moved in to live with somebody that she was just besotted with. And for her, the deployment represented a, a, a fracturing of that relationship. And in fact, um, she is needy, and when she goes on the deployment, she's terribly frightened, she's lonely, she's isolated, and she does end up forming a new relationship with another soldier, and it causes the end of her relationship at home. And you see every time they do a deployment, um, the deployments are so long that it often causes the end of one relationship or the start of a new one for these women. Um, in this, in, sorry, in Desna's case, you know, with three children as a single mother, she was scrambling to figure out who would care for her children while she was gone. And I think it's probably hard for civilians to understand why is a single mother going on a deployment. And of course, in that moment in time, Desma doesn't have a choice. She's been given orders, and she feels not only um, legally c compelled to obey her orders, but she's watching her, her, her fellow soldiers deploy, and she doesn't want to be, you know, the one who deserts the one who doesn't, you know, who, who shirks her duty when everybody else is going. So uh, she asks her cousin, who has small children herself, to watch her two daughters for a year. And she asks her son's surrogate father, the man who's really been a father figure to him, um, even though he's not his biological dad, to care for her son for a full year. And 
They do agree. She only has a short window of time. It's a matter of weeks in which to make these arrangements before she then has to report for duty full-time uh, on a, a, a base here in the U.S. to train. So it's a mad scramble for her. <coughs> Debbie, the, the oldest of the three women, she is actually in her early 50s at this point in time. Um, she's been in the National Guard now for um, about 15 years. Um, she's in a very stable relationship with a man who himself had been in the military. And she's the only one of the three women who actually holds on to the same relationship for the entirety of the book. And interestingly, while other younger women around her are having their relationships tested in really challenging ways and sometimes ending, in, in her case, her partner is so supportive that though she thought she might never want to marry again, she had been married before, um, she ends up proposing to him after she comes home from Afghanistan because he's been so supportive and their relationship is actually strengthened by the experience. Are any of these women angry as a result of this experience, as a result of being deployed the way they were? Uh, I think in the moment, Michelle Fisher, who you know was was morally and philosophically opposed to the, both wars, um, she was very angry. Debbie and Desna, who philosophically supported the war in Afghanistan, and in, in the case of Debbie, also the war in Iraq, they were not angry in the same way that Michelle was. Michelle was just filled with um, conflict about serving when she didn't believe in the cause. Um, and, and anger was one of the primary ways that, that it registered. Um, you did see Desma become angry about having to leave her children and sort of acting out. She, she's incredibly funny, and she acts out in incredibly funny ways, like she's working as a supply clerk, and she decides to have a party without any authorization to do so and tries ordering uh, hamburgers and hot dogs and kegs of beer and a Clydesdale horse because a horse would be really fun to get some lots of trouble over that. They got the hot dogs and the hamburgers, but not the horse or the beer. Um, today, I don't think any of the three, well, Debbie and Desmar are definitely not angry today. Michelle, I would say, the deployment to Afghanistan changed her life because she fell in love with Afghanistan and she met a translator while working there who was able to explain that country to her in a way where it was a really an awakening for her. It was the first time she left the United States and not only did she come to understand a foreign culture and appreciate a foreign culture, she also kind of put her own life experience in a bigger perspective. She had come from tough circumstances and she thought her life was really hard and then when she got to Afghanistan she thought oh I had no idea how easy I had it really by comparison to you know families living in third world poverty so um, she's actually came home grateful for the chance to see Afghanistan even though she didn't want to be wearing a uniform while she was there now unlike her very close friend Debbie who thought wearing a uniform in Afghanistan was the total highlight of her life. To what extent did they bond with other women that they met there and that really in many ways came from similar circumstances? Yeah. They, um, 
they form a very, very close bond with, with other women who are serving alongside them. And today they have a close bond with any female veteran. Um, you know, I've seen them walk into a room and meet another female veteran and they are instantly, you know, on the same page with that person and comparing notes and experiences. Um, there was also tension or conflict amongst the women, say, in um, Michelle and Desma's tent, for example, because Michelle, they're living in very close quarters. It's, you know, confining, almost claustrophobic. Uh, you've got Michelle who thinks smoking pot is just fine. You've got Desma who one of her coping strategies is to go get prescription pills from the medics and take them at night so she can sleep. And then you have other women in the tent who, who, one who may be lying in bed reading a Bible in the evening or, um, you know, very different uh, ideas throughout the tent around what's acceptable behavior. And so there's friction in the tent at the same time that I think at the end of that year, everybody in that tent would probably say they felt like a family. We should say that, that while these women weren't themselves in combat, where they were stationed in Kabul was, in fact, a very dangerous place. Yes. So, And they were very conscious of that position that they um, were in, where they, in terms of types of deployments, they were aware that they had a relatively safe one compared to, say, the infantry soldiers who were living on the same base but leaving to run missions at night that were truly combat, um, whereas the closest they would come to combat might be if a rocket-propelled grenade was launched in the direction of the base and the sirens would go off and they would have to put on their body armor and hunker down in their tent below the level of the sandbags piled up outside. Um, so Michelle and Debbie, and this is unusual for members of a support battalion, um, the majority of the members of their battalion would stay on post and fix um, trucks or uh, fix weapons on the post. Michelle and Debbie very unusually got an assignment to leave the post almost every day of the time they were in Afghanistan, travel through Kabul to different locations, and actually work on Soviet-style weaponry that was being repurposed to give to Afghan National Army soldiers. So usually they, you know, they had been trained to work on American-style weapons, which their own, um, you know, colleagues were carrying that that the U.S. soldiers were carrying. But in this case, they were working primarily on AK-47s, um, which had, you know, piled up in Afghanistan in huge numbers over decades of conflict, had been collected from militia members and were being fixed and given out to the Afghan army. And they worked on 20,000 AK-47s over the course of that year, a huge number their team did. Um, four years later, when their unit is deployed to Iraq, and Michelle actually, her commitment to the military had ended, so she doesn't go on the second deployment, but Debbie and Desma go on the second deployment to Iraq. You see them do very different jobs. Their unit is disbanded and... The soldiers in their unit are, are placed into different slots across, you know, their entire brigade, um, which is distributed across Iraq. And in some cases, they're no longer doing the relatively safe kind of work that they had been trained to do. So, so Desma, single mom, 
she had been trained to do basically a desk job tracking maintenance work on software. Um, instead, in Iraq, she is driving a gun truck at the front of a supply convoy on the highways of Iraq looking for roadside bombs. So she is in a far more dangerous position, and she's also in a far more um, male environment. She's, in, she's been transferred into a field artillery regiment, which women are technically not supposed to serve in, but because they're doing convoy security, they're acting in a support role. Um, women are allowed to temporarily join that field artillery regiment, and she's one of only a handful of women in the regiment. So hundreds of men, a handful of women in Iraq for a year, and, and really, really doing work that's quite dangerous. How was their experience, or was their experience different in any way from the experience of men that had been deployed there that were doing similar work, that were not in, in hardcore combat situations? I think they would feel an instant kinship with um, with with anybody, any soldier who had deployed to Afghanistan and Iraq. I mean, they would have a common language and common experiences that they would share. But for women, the ways in which their experiences were different. So Michelle, being as young as she was and very attractive, she did get intense scrutiny and attention from her male colleagues. In Afghanistan, she was only 21 years old. She has long, curly, blonde hair, a very sort of sweet-looking face, heart-shaped, and everywhere she went on the post, um, all the men she was serving with would uh, read her you know, name uh, tag on her uniform and call out to her as if they knew her name, even though they might never have actually met her before. So all day long, um, she's getting comments and suggestions and propositions, um, she didn't want that level of attention and found it sort of um, uh, too, too much to bear. It, it was oppressive. Then you had her colleague, Debbie, who's 30 years older in her early 50s, looking on, thinking somewhat wistfully, wow, it's been a long time since I got that kind of attention. And, and Debbie is battling different issues. She sometimes feels that she doesn't get an assignment she wants or... Um, uh, uh, an experience that she'd be interested in having because it might go to a younger person or, or a man. And so um, something like age discrimination or, or, you know, because she's an older woman, Debbie sometimes can feel overlooked. Um, so depending on their age, the experiences can be different. But um, by the time that they are in Iraq in this um, even m more skewed gender environment, you see Desma being told that she must carry a knife anytime she goes to the showers or the toilets because the danger of her being attacked or assaulted or raped is, is recognized to be very high. Um, she didn't, doesn't ever experience that sort of um, attack, but around her it's happening and, and she's being warned against it. Talk a little bit about the experience when they come home. And you talk about Desma suffering from PTSD when she returns. Each time that they come home, they struggle to fit back into their civilian lives. It's, it's hard when they get back from Afghanistan. It's much harder again when they 
come back from Iraq because the Iraq deployment was far more difficult and far more stressful. Um, initially, when they come home from Afghanistan, you see the women just struggling to get used to um, very mundane, ordinary things that seem normal here, but that they haven't experienced for a full year. So Desma struggles to figure out how to cook a meal for her children in the evening. She hasn't done it for a year. Somebody else has been cooking all of her meals. She struggles to keep up with the laundry, which is piling up in her house, because for a year other people have been washing her clothes. And Michelle has a panic attack in Target when she's faced with aisles and aisles of consumer goods and she can't make up her decision what things to buy and it's an overstimulating environment for her and she's had a you know kind of a crazy year and a hard transition back home and she just goes to pieces in that moment um but it's really when they come home from iraq that that desma struggles the most of all um while driving her truck um at the front of the supply convoy she was running in the second position in the convoy which is called assistant scout and she's looking for any bombs that the first truck has missed. They do hit a roadside bomb, and the blast is so powerful and they're so close to the bomb that everybody in the truck got severe concussions, and in her case, she was diagnosed months later with mild traumatic brain injury. Um, and she also comes home hypervigilant because she has post-traumatic stress disorder, so she is constantly reacting as if she's still in the war zone and as if there might be a bomb beside the road at home in Indiana, just like there would have been in Iraq. Um, she also, you know, she, her physical symptoms, she has a um, blinding migraine level headache constantly for years that is only suppressed by strong medication and anti-convulsant used to treat epilepsy. Uh, but the medication itself gives her memory loss. And so she's either battling the headache or the memory loss. Um, so she, she really struggles to put the experience behind her. Um, ultimately, five, you know, five years after her time in Iraq, she, she works with a very talented therapist at the VA who helps her relive the experience of the bomb going off to such a degree in therapy that they can kind of wring out all the emotions that she had been trying to contain. And she does get some relief at that point in time and is a little bit less vigilant uh, afterwards. What do we learn from the experience of these three women that perhaps can help us better understand how women in these situations will deal with this in future wars and future combat situations? It's critical if women are going to serve alongside men in the military that they be treated with dignity and respect. It sounds really obvious, but it didn't always happen during these two wars. And it's just absolutely imperative that if women are putting on the uniform and leaving their own families behind to put themselves in harm's way, that their colleagues learn how to treat them with dignity and respect. And in, in the course of the, the time that these women spent in the military, um, the extent to which they were treated with dignity varied a lot depending on unit leadership. 
So they had very different experiences in different units. And the extent to which the leadership impacted how their deployments went was vast. You see this particularly with Desna, who spent time in two different previously all-male units. She's transferred first into an infantry regiment, and the experience is so uncomfortable there. She's treated with such hostility there that she asks to leave and is transferred out of there into a previously all-male field, field artillery regiment. And the gender ratio is the same in, in each one of those um, uh, regiments, but her experience as a woman is night and day different, and it just has to do with the leadership and how the other soldiers respond to her presence. In the first, um, she is treated as a foreign, alien, unwanted. The men don't want women serving alongside them. They won't speak with her. They don't answer her questions. They won't sit with her at mealtime. Nobody will walk with her to the bathroom, though she's told she must go with, an, with a buddy or an escort. You know, she is shunned, essentially. And in, in, in the field artillery regiment, uh, she's treated cautiously at first, but soon welcomed by the men who just, um, they're, they're really interested to see what sort of personality does she have. It doesn't matter whether she's male or female. It matters more how is she going to fit in with the rest of them, just as an individual. And, you know, by the end of her year in Iraq, she has formed a lifelong bonds um, with the men that she serves with. And, um, you know, they're so close. And the things that some of the men said about her when I interviewed them, you know, they're, they're so warm toward her. You can tell that um, they've achieved the kind of bond that two men would have who've gone to war together. Helen, so it, it, go ahead. I don't think you can, like, train leadership necessarily to um, have um, the, the right instincts, but you can pick the right leaders who are, who are going to have the right instincts for, for how to achieve that. Helen Thorpe, the book is Soldier Girls, The Battle of Three Women at Home and at War. Helen, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 